You probably already knew this when you did a search for the Westchester Church Podcast. But just in case you forgot, you're listening to the Westchester Church Podcast. Check us out at westchestercfc.com. Westchestercfc.com. I would like to just jump right into to Matthew chapter 7, where we have been the last couple of weeks. And as you're turning there, I would like to, to obviously start in the most obvious place. And that is by referring to, to a Chinese food. Because clearly that is where everybody expected me to go this morning. Um, many years ago, Amanda and I went to a Chinese food place. And I had a fortune cookie that was so bizarre. What it said was, it is better to have beans and bacon in peace than to have cakes and ale in fear. And, and for the past five or six years, I, I am still trying to decipher just what exactly that means because I just don't understand what that means. And maybe that is what the whole, whole object of that um, cookie is. But as we come into Matthew chapter 7 and verse 6, we come to a statement Jesus makes that, that for a very long time in my life, it was a fortune cookie that was very weird to me, a very bizarre statement that has taken my entire life to really understand exactly what he means. Jesus says in verse 6, Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample you under their, their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, what I love about Jesus is that he is not a left-brain thinker or a left-brain speaker. If a person is left-brain, that, that is fine. But, I mean, Jesus is just so insanely right-brained. I mean, Jesus, for, for, for a very long duration of time, would exclusively speak in just parables. On other occasions, as we see here this morning, Jesus would oftentimes intentionally speak in outlandishly um, colorful hyperbole, where, where sometimes he speaks about camels walking through the eyes of needles, about men who have tree trunks in their eyes who are judging other people, or as we see here this morning, casting pearls before swine. And yet a lot of times in the gospel books, we find Jesus speaking to a whole bunch of people, but in the background, we find the apostles looking at each other like, where is he going with this? Maybe as we hear verse, verse 6 read to us this morning, maybe our response is, Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not cast pearls before swine. And you know, at first glance, it looks like Jesus is making an absolutely shocking statement as he begins speaking about dogs and pigs. And as it has been all throughout in this series on the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of times we might read something with our American eyes and, and we have no idea what it means, but for anybody who has Jewish ears and Jewish eyes, this, this makes all the sense in the world to them. Now, a lot of us in this culture are, are individuals who absolutely love animals. And Amanda and I are really no, no exception to this. I mean, we, we have a couple of dogs. And in fact, we consider them so much as children to us. When the time came, 
Many years ago, for us to have a family portrait, we, we have thought, well, we need to have our, our whole entire family with us in our family picture. And so on the left is Josie, on the right is, is Amika. And I mean, we love our dogs so much that you could go on YouTube right now and find a song I personally wrote about our dog Josie. Casey Chipmunks all over the yard. Her name is Josie. She's a doxy. The adorable, the devious, mischievous sausage dog. She looks like a hot dog. She looks like a limousine. You know, we, we love our animals in this culture. And yet the problem was in the first century is that whenever we find dogs mentioned, especially in, in Old Covenant times, Scripture is not exactly as pet-friendly as we tend to be in America. I mean, dogs, whenever we find dogs referenced in Scripture, it's always wild scavengers. It's about creatures who could attack you in the wilderness if you were not cautious. Historically speaking, it refers to, to many dogs being in Jerusalem city dump, fighting over bones and garbage. And yet eventually what the imagery is, anytime that we hear dogs mentioned, where it's not literally speaking about actual dogs, it's never a positive thing. As scripture writers who were inspired by, by God and by the Holy Spirit, search for imagery to convey exactly what it looks like when we go back to our old way of living and thinking. What King Solomon says in the book of Proverbs is, he says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a, so a fool repeats his folly. Yet predominantly when we hear that word dog, what it came to mean, especially in new covenantal times, was it would be a description of any kind of unclean person, a prostitute perhaps. Or, if, or especially in the Jewish world, Gentiles, us Gentiles have been referred to as dogs for, for, for a very long time. But notice how Jesus also mentioned swine. Now what do we know about pigs in Jewish culture? Jews never ate pigs, couldn't even make, make any contact with pigs or with swine. But what this is largely in reference to are these larger pigs who have these razor-sharp tusks. Now, if you had a vineyard in this time, in this setting, you would despise swine because they would, um, a lot of times, infiltrate into to that vineyard, devour all of the grapes, trash the place, and trample into to your, your vines. But as it was in the case, case of dogs, in this Hebrew culture, if you, you saw a person who was unclean, a person who was selfish, a person who was self-indulgent, a person who was greedy, filthy in any way, you would, you would oftentimes say, well, that person is, is a swine, is a pig. Again, a lot of times Gentiles have been referred to in this way. And there is a very hard um, image that we have in Scripture this is a passage that even the most, most astute of scholars struggle with. Where we find a woman who is a Canaanite woman, and she comes before Jesus, and she has a young daughter and says, Jesus, please help us. But what happens is, it says in Matthew 15, that his disciples came and implored Jesus, saying, send her away, because she, she just keeps shouting at us. 
But Jesus answered and said, that I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And yet she, she again comes and she begins bowing down before Jesus, saying, Jesus, please help me. And then notice how Jesus, re how he responds to this woman. As he says that it is not good to take the children's bread, notice, and throw it to the dogs. No matter how we, we um, look at this, this passage, it doesn't look very complimentary, does it? In fact, it looks like Jesus is making a pejorative slur against all Gentiles and against this Canaanite woman. She says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which, which are falling from, from um, a master's table. And so we add all of this up. We see Jesus referring to, to um, people as, as swine and as dogs, and we just wonder, who is Jesus calling swine, pigs, and dogs? And it's comical because, especially given what just came out of Jesus' mouth two weeks ago, what Jesus has just gotten through saying is, do not judge. And the measure that you use is exactly how you yourself will be judged. And now, it looks like Jesus is making slurs left and right. But what we need to understand is, when we hear Jesus speaking about this, he is speaking in a time and in an age where, where he's not referring to individuals as individuals. But rather what he's doing is, He's referring to, to, to individuals whose conduct is, is something which, which might remind you of a wild animal. It's about people whose hostility and self-indulgence is reminiscent of a scavenger such as a dog or a wild hog. And I don't know about you, but many years along the way, I have heard all kinds of, of, of interpretations about exactly what Jesus means in verse 6. I think clearly we can all understand exactly what Jesus means as he says pearls. As Jesus says pearls, this is anything that has astronomical value, obviously. Now we would look at this as truth, as the gospel of Jesus Christ, as the gift of the Holy Spirit, as life in, in Jesus Christ and so forth. And now Jesus says something to the modern-day equivalent of, now, now imagine taking a 24-karat gold necklace and trying to give that to a wild hog. And yet there have been all kinds of, of interpretations about this in, in many churches. One of the most um, common of these um, interpretations is something along the lines of, well, do not waste a treasure of the gospel on people who really have no, no, no appreciation of it. I don't know if anybody's ever heard that before. There are other kinds of churches who are, are more right-wing, who, who very well might, might have a perception of, and so what this means is that anybody who rejects Jesus at any moment in time, they are clearly evil dogs and worthless rats. And how the world looks at the church many times is that if you're alcoholic, if you are a Muslim, if you are a transgender person, if you're an inmate, then what this means is that Christians just want nothing to, to ever do to you. They won't even acknowledge the fact that you, you even exist. And yet the problem with these misinterpretations is that this is not at all what the Spirit of Jesus Christ is. 
In fact, one of the, the, the main central accusations levied against Jesus was, was that he was a friend of the tax collectors and the sinners. I mean, Jesus hung out with, with these exact kinds of people almost just as much as he hung out with his apostles and his disciples. But mainly, the main problem with this interpretation, though, is that when we hear Jesus call certain people dogs and swine, this is also a description of who we used to be as well. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, among them, notice, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in those desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. Notice how he says, just as the rest of mankind had been living. And so as Jesus mentions swine and dogs, this is where we have come from right here. I mean, the very entrance of Jesus Christ into this world. Jesus came as a very valuable pearl into this world. In this world of swine and dogs, and we devour Jesus. Jesus, on the cross, as he hangs his head and he dies for, for our sins, we, we had relegated him to a rose trampled upon the ground. In fact, I find it very interesting how, in, in a very messianic psalm, as Jesus speaks about what his crucifixion is going to be like long before it happened, notice his word choice. As his worst enemies are there mocking him on the cross, he says, dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me, and they, they have pierced my, my hands, and they have pierced my feet. You see, Jesus is not even remotely saying that, that one ethnicity is greater than the other. He's not saying that there, there are certain kinds of people in this world who we need to ostracize and demonize and discard. Because if he were expressing that, I mean, heaven is going to be awfully empty, isn't it? And I know I'm not going to be there if that's true. Maybe even you too. I mean, yes, sometimes there will be hostile rejection. I remember one exact um, snap image in scripture where Jesus is in, in a gathering village and there, there is a man who has a litany of these unclean spirits in him, legion of, of um, demons. And these demons say, Jesus, we implore you, send us into all of these swine who are on this hillside. Jesus says, go, and all these unclean spirits enter into all of those, those pigs and they rush down that steep bank and they drown in the waters below. Well, in this village, clearly it's a very poor village. And those pigs were their meal ticket. It was their, their entire source, many of them, of livelihood. And so what we find in Mark chapter 5 is, it says those who had seen it had described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. Notice how it says they began imploring Jesus to leave their region. Jesus, get out of our city right now and never come back. And yet notice Jesus' reaction to this. He doesn't say, wait a minute, guys, you, you have it all wrong. Here's, here's why all of this has just happened. Anytime that a person says, Jesus, get the, out of my life right now, Jesus's, his reaction is he just gets into the boat and he leaves. He does exactly what they have asked him to do. I mean, Jesus will not force himself on anybody. 
I think about another example in John chapter 6, as Jesus speaks before this, this huge multitude of people. And a lot of people grotesquely misunderstand what he's just said, and, and a lot of them say, you know what, this guy is nuts. Let's just walk away from Jesus right now. And many people do that. But as they, they, they walk away from Jesus, Jesus is not chasing after them, saying, wait a minute, guys, you got it all wrong. Here's what I actually meant by this. If we want nothing to do with Jesus, then he's not going to, 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 to say that you have to follow in my footsteps. We're all given a choice in the matter. I mean, yes, sometimes we absolutely need to get back into the boat and to leave people alone. Sometimes we might even have to shake dust off of our, our feet once we, we have been rejected. And yet, as the case is so often in what Jesus says, there is a much deeper meaning at the root of what he's saying here. I mean, there is a much larger conversation that, that we as the church need to have this morning. And that is my discovery not that long ago. That what Jesus says in verse 6 about casting pearls before swine, this actually has so much more to do with the messenger than it does of the listener. I believe what Jesus is warning us against here is aggressive, pushy, religious harassment. Really, it goes back all the way into chapter 5 and verse 13, as Jesus says that, that you are the salt of this earth. What, what he means by that is that when you, you love other people as I have loved you, when you imitate the way that, that I have joy and peace in this world, that is going to bring flavor into this world. It's going to make all of this, this, this world a much better place. And yet Jesus also says that, but if the salt loses its saltiness, if the church is no longer making our world a better place, but it's making it a, a much worse place, Jesus says it's no longer good for anything except, notice, to be thrown out and to be trampled underfoot by, by a men. And once again, this is what he's referring to. We could express it also in this way, that it's not about the worthiness of the people who receive the message, as much as this is about the, the unhelpfulness of those who are messengers. I mean, the good news is absolutely priceless, amen? And we need to, to reach as many people as we possibly can. I mean, we need to be doing this. But what Jesus is referring to here, though, is when we push eternal things on people whose minds are exclusively going after things of this world, people who are not yet, yet ready for, for all of these spiritual truths. This is about force-feeding biblical concepts upon people who do not yet have appetites for those things. This is the woman who has rejected a man 15 times, but he just keeps coming after her. He keeps trying to, to make her enter into a relationship with him. Until finally what she says is, look, I'm not into you. One more advance and you're going to get hit with a restraining order, you know? It is a hospital patient who is being strapped down, held against his will by, by like five or six doctors and medicine being crammed down, down his throat against his will. It is a farmer who has grown very impatient and the very moment that, that he plants seed into the ground, he, he um, floods it 
and his entire soil is drowned, and nothing comes to fruition as a result of it. I grew up in a very large youth group in Arizona. I mean, 60, 70, 80 kids sometimes. And that looks very good on paper. And yet, it's very tragic that many of those kids, the moment that they, they had gone off into college, they ran for their lives away from, from Jesus and away from, from church culture. That's because a lot of them grew up, and all those years that they, they were in, in church settings, they never had a faith of their very own. I believe what Jesus is saying here is that it's not so much what we say, but rather what is important is, is how we say it. It's not what we do as much as how we are doing it. And that's because when we resort to this aggressive, religious, high-pressure you know, harassment, every single instance, it produces an outcome that is absolutely tragic and disastrous where the very influence of the church and the name of Jesus Christ upon the earth, it is trampled underfoot by, by men. And the very light that he has given to us in this world, as far as our influence goes, it, is, it has been, been now extinguished. You know, it's absolutely incredible how, historically speaking, what we read about Rome, especially in first century um, Jerusalem, in the early 300s, Constantine the Great arises into power. He is now emperor over Rome. And he announces a decree and an edict that from now on, Christianity is going to be the official religion of the Roman Empire. And I mean, again, that looks great on paper, amen? I mean, it looks wonderful. But this is where Roman Catholicism came from right here. You see, what the problem with, with, with a theocracy is, is that you've got everybody, literally everybody is in church now, but you've got a lot of people whose hearts were not there. The whole entire nation is there, but they're not there, there. And all of a sudden, slowly but surely, this, 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 this exciting, dangerous, brand new way of life called the Christian life, it's now a very rote thing, a very legalistic thing, once again. And, when, and as Constantine enforces Christianity as the official religion of the empire, Christianity lost its counterculture scandal that is absolutely imperative to our culture as Christians. I went to, to um, a seminary in um, West Texas, and we were very ambitious, let me say that. Once a week, we would go into Alcoholics Anonymous meetings across the street from, from our school, and Again, we had very, very good, very pure intentions there. The only problem was we didn't know anything about alcoholism. And so at a very young, young age in my ministry, I mean, I would stand up and, and I would try to help people. I would never actually express this out loud to them, but the way that it came across to a lot of them was, okay, you, you've just heard Christ's gospel. And so, you know, just, just stop being alcoholics forever and let's get into the water. But what I discovered there is that, you know what, David? That's going to take a little bit of time, you know? A person who's an alcoholic is just not going to, to instantly, magically stop being alcoholic. 
A person who is a lesbian is not just going to instantly stop being a lesbian. I mean, no matter who we encounter, it's going to take a lot of time. And unfortunately, what the outcome was there is that the um, group of people who I was in, we were asked to, to, to leave and to never come back. And our message had been entirely lost on these people because of our aggression, as inadvertent as it was. I was in a coffee shop maybe three years ago in Florida one morning. I like to spend as little time in a church office as I can and to, to treat our entire city as if it were, were an office. And, and yet one morning in a coffee shop, I saw three Jehovah Witnesses clear an entire Dunkin' Donuts out in just five or six minutes. I mean, these guys were, were just getting in everybody's faces, table after table, getting in their faces with this high-pressure, you know, religious salesmanship, very confrontational spirits. And as a result of, of all of that, a lot of times when we try to, to even speak about Jesus in this world, a lot of times we might be confused with, with Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses who you know, start all these fights in, in town. And yet it's also in the church, though, isn't it? I've heard so many stories about how in the 1950s and 60s, we were baptizing 3 million people a week, and that was just on Wednesdays. And that looks wonderful, and it is wonderful. Many people came, came into the church as a result of that. And yet I've heard many other ministers who were actually alive in, there um, in those days say, yeah, I mean, we were in a lot of environments where a lot of ministers used a lot of scare tactics. Every single message that they preached was just hellfire damnation. I mean, when, when, when my father, who was very young, maybe just like five or six years, years of age in Tennessee growing up, and he remembers a minister glaring at him saying that if you're not baptized right now, you and, you and your entire family are going straight to hell. And so, yeah, a lot of people had been, been um, immersed. A lot of ministers, very, very proud of themselves. We baptized 3,000 you know, 3, people last year. And yet, is that really true conversion? I don't know. I heard from another minister who had said that he was once, once in a church that was extremely evangelistic. And yet, what the issue was there is that they did not look at other people as, as souls, but rather all they were were just numbers on an attendance chart. And I find that very, very sad and very tragic. That is not at all what Jesus has in mind. And so it is a disastrous outcome when we resort to this. And yet, lastly, what we see, though, is that there is another way for us to proclaim Jesus. It is a way that we do not cast pearls before swine. And that is when, when you and I learn to be as wise as a snake and as gentle as a dove. And notice how what Jesus says to his 12 disciples is, again, notice how this is not dehumanizing speech as he, as he compares people to, and he gives them metaphors of animals. When he tells them in Matthew chapter 10, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And then he says something very wise and profound, where he says, so be wise as serpents and be innocent 
as doves. You see, as we consider a snake, snakes are very astute. Snakes are very stealth, very watchful and wise. Jesus also speaks um, here about doves. Doves are fundamentally incapable of aggression or of, of ulterior motives. I've heard many times in the church, especially as it pertains to, to um, youth in the church, that, well, all we need to do is just light a fire underneath neath them, get them excited about it. But I don't know about you, but if you light a fire underneath me, I'm getting out of the way because I'm, I'm about to get, get all burned up. A lot of people have gotten burned up in that way. Yet as I had, had experienced firsthand as a young man in the church growing up, when Jesus can, can make his way into my, my heart, when Jesus can get into my, my soul and my mind, that is the only fire that is going to result in any kind of growth. Is when we do not light a fire underneath people, but rather we are going to, to light, light, light a fire within somebody. It really all boils down to, to this. That there is an art of truth-telling which perceives more than, than it pontificates, that is patient rather than pushy, and that exemplifies and that does not nag other people. For a long time in our church tribe, our mantra has been what was read to us a moment ago in 2 Timothy 4. Preach the word, be ready in season and out. And we get very excited about that, and we need to. Other people who I've known get, get extremely eager about the other part where it says, it says, rebuke people and correct them, exhort them. And yet so often what is missing in that is really what is the most important component of that where he also says, preach the word, exhort people with great patience. With great patience. In other words, this is going to take a little bit of time. It's going to take, take um, um, a lot of time in a lot of instances. And I think the most beautiful example of this is what we find in Acts chapter 17. As we find the Apostle Paul there in the city of Athens, and he notices how the entire city is just crawling with all of these, these false gods of wood. And yet, I marvel, though, at exactly how, how he looks at these people. He does not jump upon a rooftop and say, all of you idolaters, you are about to go straight to hell for this. I mean, he doesn't hound them at all, but, but rather what he does is, starting off, he just quietly observes, where he spends many days just simply walking around in the marketplace. He immerses himself in, in their culture, and he quietly observes exactly who his audience is in advance. And yet, secondly, it's... It's so wise and so brilliant. What he also does is, as he begins speaking to them, he actually compliments them in some degree where he says, men, I, I can see that you are very religious in all aspects. I mean, he, he acknowledges good that he sees already at work within them. Then and only then will he begin speaking about Jesus. Where he says that, that all of these, these gods who you are worshiping in, in your ignorance. I want to let all of you know right now about, about um, a living God who has risen up out of the grave. And he speaks about Jesus, obviously. 
And yet notice how even though it is, it is Paul and the great apostle Paul speaking, most of, most of the people who, who he said all of this to still had zero interest in Jesus. Where it says, as they, they have heard about the resurrection of, of, um, of Jesus from the dead, many people started sneering at Paul as a result of this. And so rejection is absolutely happening here to Paul. And yet notice, though, what, um, exactly how this ends, though. Where in the latter part of that verse, in verse 32, how even though some people start sneering at Paul, it says, other people said that we shall hear you again concerning this. Notice how Paul is not baptizing one single person on this specific day. But rather, all that he is really doing is, is, um, is making people take one or two tiny little steps forward. I mean, that's all that he's doing here. And I think a lot of times we completely stress um, our own selves out, thinking, you know, I've got to baptize X amount of people right now, right now, right now, right now, right now. But really, all that he's doing is just just one or two tiny steps forward to the real Jesus. And that, even that is huge. See, this is very significant because helping people take one or two tiny minuscule steps forward, that is better even if we were to even baptize someone who has no idea what they're doing. Helping a person take one or two tiny steps forward is so much better than, than harassing them into taking a thousand steps back more than they have already taken away from Jesus. And so in closing here this morning, every one of us has people in our life who knows that we are a follower of Jesus Christ. And so, I mean, what does it look like for you and for me to, to light that fire within them? Well, I am learning this every day in my own, own experiences of trying to do just, just exactly this. When we try to light a fire inside other people, we've got to make sure that that same exact fire also burns within our souls. As the old expression goes, that the only way an unbelieving world will, will ever see or experience a holy God is once they have experienced His holiness in His people. Make sure that His fire burns within us and then Lastly, what I want to, to say to us this morning is that long before we even say one, one, one word to, to anybody else about Jesus, that we ask ourselves, what, what evidence of goodness is in this person already, which I can acknowledge and compliment to them? It's been my, my experience many times that if I look close enough, there are at least one or two or three, even more, more things in that person that is already so, so um, good and so beautiful. And yet it's especially been my experience, though, that any time I've ever gone to, to another person trying to, to help them spiritually, whether in the church or even outside of the church, every single time that other person blesses me so much more than I ever could have dreamed of, of um, ever helping them. In fact, we might even experience in this thing called, called evangelism and in Christian living that so many people who we thought had been dogs and wild pigs 
we come to find out that religiously speaking, the only ones who were dogs and wild pigs were, were us. <laughs> what Jesus is inviting us to here this morning is to replace anxiety and worry and harsh judgmentalism with very gentle, very wise self-awareness. May we be those kinds of individuals who look at people not as numbers on an attendance chart, not as a way to, to um, increase how much money that we have in this church or, or anything else, but to look at people as souls awaiting an eternal destination, just like us.